Good morning. Stick out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Psalm 63. Some of you just open to the Gospel of Luke by muscle memory, but uh, we're actually going to take a little break from the Gospel of Luke for a few months, and I figured the end of chapter 9 is as good a place as any to take a break from Luke. Uh, during that break, Lord willing, we are going to go back and finish the book of Second Samuel. If you're here with us back in 2020, 2021, you may remember we worked our way through First and Second Samuel all the way to Second Samuel chapter seven. Uh, so David, after many years of running from King Saul, he's finally king. He's uh, established on his throne. God makes the covenant with him, and we stopped right there to start the Gospel of Luke. And so next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll pick it right back up in 2 Samuel chapter 8 and get back into the life of David. Today, this morning, before we turn our attention in the weeks to come to the life of David, I want to study together one of the Psalms that he wrote that we might really see the heart of David. The Psalms... John Calvin called them an anatomy of the soul. The very genre of poetry, that's what the Psalms are. The very genre of poetry just lends itself to the expression of the deepest emotions of the soul. And you know David, he wrote half the Psalms that we have in our Bibles, the sweet psalmist of Israel. But while all the Psalms that David wrote give us insight into his heart, I think there's few that are as intense and and passionate and revealing of what's going on in his heart as the 63rd Psalm. And so that's going to be our focus for this morning as we try to learn about the heart of the man whose life we'll be studying in depth in the months to come. And so let's just start by reading the Psalm in its entirety. Psalm 63, this is the word of the Lord, and this is the way in which God is speaking to us this morning through his word. Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Father, we as your people, 
We desire to have this kind of heart and passion for you, that you would be the great longing and desire of our hearts, that you alone would be the ultimate satisfaction of our souls. We know that that's not something that we can just work up in ourselves or just to produce in our hearts. We acknowledge that it's something that the Holy Spirit must do. And so we ask that you would use our study of this psalm to do exactly that. For we believe that you change us by your word. Please do that this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great things about studying the psalms that David wrote is that for at least some of them, we know exactly what the circumstances were when he wrote the psalm. We can match them up with the narratives in First and Second Samuel. And Psalm 63 is kind of like that. We kind of know what's going on. Uh, look at the superscription. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now the reason I said that we kind of know is because that could be referring to one of two time periods in his life uh, that are recorded for us in First and Second Samuel. It could be referring to when he was being chased by King Saul. And so this is after David is anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel. But before he actually becomes king, you'll remember that Saul, the first king of Israel, he is still king at this time. And David is not only his son-in-law by virtue of marrying Saul's daughter, but also he is a very successful commander in Saul's army. But... Saul gets very jealous. Saul feels very threatened by David. And so he basically spends about 10 chapters of 1 Samuel trying to kill David. And so David is forced to run away from the palace. And he spends at least part of those fugitive years in the wilderness in the territory of Judah. Uh, That's in 1 Samuel 22 and 23. And so that's one possibility of what's being referred to here when it says that David was in the wilderness of Judah. He's running from Saul. A second possibility is that this is referring to a time when David is king over Israel, but he's chased out of Jerusalem in a rebellion by his son Absalom. So this would be around 2 Samuel chapters 15 and 16. Uh, In that time, once again, the author tells us that David goes into the wilderness of the region of Judah, this time running from Absalom. Now, those who would prefer this Absalom scenario to the Saul scenario, well, uh, they would point to at least two points of evidence. Uh, First, look at the Psalm, uh, verse 11. Notice that David refers to himself there as the king. Uh, That's something that David never does before he becomes king, when Saul is still king even with the promise from God that he would one day be king. You'll remember that David is always very respectful of Saul, deferential to Saul as king. Uh, The second piece of evidence, if you read the account in 2 Samuel 16, uh, we'll get to that in a a few weeks, Lord willing, uh, you come across verses like this one in 2 Samuel 16, 14 that seem to kind of match up really well with the weariness and the thirst that David is describing in Psalm 63. 
2 Samuel 16, 14, the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan River, and there he refreshed himself. And so it's entirely possible that Psalm 63 was written in those days of fleeing from Absalom. But it's hard to be dogmatic. Many of the older commentators tend to lean towards the Saul scenario, and many of the newer commentators tend to Uh, lean toward the Absalom scenario. I think it's probably Absalom, uh, but I could be wrong. Uh, Before the season started, I uh, was confident that the Mets would win the World Series. So, what do I know? But here's the thing. Either way, whether David's writing about running from Saul or whether he's writing about running from Absalom, either way, the psalm expresses David's heart in the midst of severe trial and danger and betrayal. Whether it's his father-in-law who's trying to kill him or his beloved son who's trying to kill him, like his close family is turning against him. And whether he's yet to become king or he's already ruling on the throne, either way, he is far from the palace. He is very distant, seemingly, from the kingship that God has promised. Whether it's King Saul or King Absalom, who is his enemy, Either way, David's life is in extreme danger from a mighty foe. But even with all of that going on, in either scenario, this psalm shows us David's primary focus and how it remains on God. How as a man after God's own heart, his true desire is for God and God alone. And so with all that in mind as kind of background and context, let's turn our attention to the text now. And just to keep our thoughts organized, uh, let me give you a a three-point outline here that may be helpful. First, in verses 1 through 4, we're going to see David's longing for God. Second, in verses 5 through 8, we're going to see David's satisfaction in God. And third, verses 9 through 11, we're going to see David's trust in God. So David's longing for God, his satisfaction in God, and then his trust in God. We'll start with point number one, David's longing for God. This will be the longest of our three points because if we get what David is saying here, like if we understand what he's saying here, I think the rest is just going to flow very naturally. Look at verse one. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So remember the context here. David is in the wilderness of Judah. He's being chased by his enemies. When we say wilderness, don't picture like green forests and streams and rivers running around everywhere like birds chirping and butterflies and all that kind of, that nice little scene there. I know what you should be picturing in your mind here is an arid, bleak desert, a little to no vegetation, and importantly, with nothing around to drink, right? It's a dry and weary land where there is no water. This is a long ways from the palace where David probably never lacked for food and drink. And so naturally, he's on the run. He's in that wilderness, that dry and weary land. And so David would get thirsty. 
he would get weak. He would uh, be faint from dehydration. I don't know how many of you would be old enough to remember this, uh, but back in the 90s, uh, Sprite ran these commercials with a, a basketball player named Grant Hill. Grant Hill drinks Sprite? Grant Hill drinks Sprite. Right? Kids want to be like Grant Hill? Well, if you want to be like Grant Hill, you got to drink Sprite. And the slogan at the end of those commercials was, anybody? Obey your thirst. Obey your thirst, Sprite. Right? Obey your thirst. That's not just a clever marketing slogan, though it is a clever marketing slogan. It's, it's a fundamental truth. It's a principle to staying alive. Right? Thirst, true thirst, like when your body's been deprived of water for a prolonged period of time, it's one of the most intense desires that we can have. Our bodies need water to survive, and thirst is our body's way of signaling that need. And so if we're going to live, we must obey our thirst. And whether Sprite is the best way to obey your thirst, that's another discussion for another day. But it's as David thinks about obeying his physical thirst in that dry and weary land that his mind is then directed to an even greater longing that he has, an even stronger thirst that he has, right? one in his soul, one that he must obey. Physically, my body thirsts for water, but spiritually, he says, my soul thirsts for you. And it's such a strong desire that his entire being, right, soul and body, feels the effects. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. Now, who is this you? Well, of course, he's referring to God. It's the God who, look at verse 2 of the psalm, it's the God who David has looked upon in the sanctuary. As he reminisces about those days when, well, he wasn't in exile, but he was able to worship his God with the people of God, worshiping him in his power and glory. Well, he acutely feels this need for the presence of God. But don't miss what David says about this God at the very outset of the psalm. He says, oh God, you are my God. That is a profound statement that we ought not to skip over. It's saying a lot more than just, oh God, you are God, though that in itself is a very profound statement. It's, oh God, you are my God. My God, highlighting the covenant relationship that he has with this great God. Going back all the way to Abraham and, and Moses, right? what, what is the most basic form of the covenant relationship that God establishes with his people? Like, like what is the most fundamental promise? I will be your God and you will be my people. Right? I will be your God. And so David in turn can say, oh God, you are my God. But here's the vitally important question that we can't miss. How, how can David say that? I mean, you think about it. This psalm, if it was written when he was on the run from Absalom, which again, I think there's good reason to think that, if this psalm was written when he was fleeing from Absalom, well, one of the reasons for the family strife 
that led to his exile was David's own sin. His terrible sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. God said it back in 2 Samuel 12. It's as a result of that sin that I will raise up against you evil out of your own house. And so even as David finds himself in exile, right, in the wilderness, he would have been reminded by his very circumstances of his great sin. And so how is it that David is able to say, in the wilderness to which he was driven by his own sin against God, how can he say that God is his God? Isn't God a holy God? Isn't God a just God? How can a wicked sinner like David refer to a holy God as my God? Well, the answer is revealed to us throughout the entire storyline of the Bible. The answer is God's sovereign grace. God's tender mercy towards sinners like David. The ultimate manifestation of that mercy, of course, being the gospel. The gospel of the son of David, David's son and yet David's Lord. The gospel of Jesus. The gospel that says that even though all of us We deserve eternal death. We deserve hell because of our sins. And so David deserved eternal death, deserved hell because of his sin. Well, God, in love for sinners like us, sent his son to become like one of us and live a perfect life as the son of God, a life of perfect obedience to the Father, and then die on a Roman cross. Not for his own sins, for he had none. He was perfect. But for the sins of his people. Taking all our sins upon himself. Suffering the wrath of God in our place. So that all who would trust in him could have their sins forgiven. So that sinners like David. Really bad sinners like David. And sinners like me and you. Really bad sinners like me and you. We can be made perfectly righteous in God's sight. Our sins paid for by Christ. So that undeserving sinners like us, undeserving sinners like David, can say with conviction, Oh God, you are my God. A friend, if you've come to church today and you are not a Christian, that's the most important thing you're going to hear Like, not just this morning, but for the rest of your life. That you can have your sins forgiven. That you can be made right with God because of what Jesus did on behalf of sinners like you. Because unless you can say that God is your God through the gospel, which you can't if your sin isn't paid for, unless you can say that nothing else in the psalm applies to you, But David, David knows about that forgiveness. David knows about that abundant mercy of God. And so he can say, oh God, you are my God. And he longs for the presence of that God, his God. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, he longs, his soul thirsts for that God. 
But just like thirsting for water is not in itself enough to satisfy your thirst, you got to respond to that thirst, or you got to obey that physical thirst by pursuing water. Well, in the same way, it's not just that David thirsts for God. It's that he responds to that thirst. He obeys his spiritual thirst by pursuing God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, and with all his strength. Oh God, you are my God, verse 1. And so what does he do? Earnestly, I seek you. Right? In response to that thirst, David earnestly seeks a greater intimacy, a fuller knowledge, a closer communion with God. Point number one, David's longing for God. But at this point, brothers and sisters, we have to pause and reflect a little bit here. And just pause and ask ourselves, well, does this describe my life? Uh, Do I pursue God? And do I pursue God like this? Do I seek after God this hard? I think for most of us, we're believers, if we're honest, we do find in our hearts a desire to pursue God and a desire to seek his face. But at the same time, right, we, we read about David's intensity and fervor and passion here, and perhaps we feel like our own pursuit of the Lord just has a lot of room to grow. And so David, Mr. Man after God's own heart, David, what is your secret? How is it that you can pursue after God like that? And how is it, even in the midst of all the difficult circumstances that you've been dealt, the persecution, the suffering, the exile, how is it that you are able to worship God so joyfully? Just look at the repeated references in the psalm to his joyful worship. End of verse 3, my lips will praise you. Verse 4, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. Verse 5, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. And verse 7, I will sing for joy. David, how can you worship like that when you've been betrayed, when you've been forced into exile, into this dry and weary land where there is no water? Like, what is your secret? The secret, I think it's in verse 3. I think it's the conviction that David expresses here. Because your steadfast love is better than life. That's it. The reason David pursues so earnestly after God, the reason that David is able to worship so joyfully in spite of his circumstances, it's this. It's that he truly believes that God's steadfast love is better than life. Remember, this is being written by a man who is literally running for his life. He's fleeing from his enemies. And it's in that context that he's able to say, God's steadfast love is better than this thing that I am on the run trying to preserve. And if you read the psalm, it becomes very clear that deliverance from his enemies and safety and security, it's not that 
which David is really seeking here. He doesn't describe his thirst and his longing as being for safety or getting his crown back or being avenged on his enemies. He doesn't ask God for any of those things in this psalm. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying for deliverance. We see plenty of examples in the scriptures of godly men and women praying for deliverance. But here David teaches us that there ought to be an even higher prayer of the believer's heart. Even higher than deliverance, even higher than safety, even higher than life itself. David asks God for God himself. God's presence, God's communion, a fuller experience of God's steadfast love. Why? Because in his valuation, that is better than life. Martyrs throughout church history, from Stephen to Tyndale to Jim Elliot, surely they would agree. Surely they would agree that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Because in death, right, in the loss of life, well, what do believers experience but the fullness of God's steadfast love, which is better than the life that you just lost? Your steadfast love is better than life. Life, life is temporal. Life is fleeting. Life is ephemeral. But the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Life, life is subject to change. A change and decay in all around I see. We sang that this morning. But God's steadfast love is unchanging and abiding because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so life is a good thing. It's a good gift from a good God that we ought to enjoy and love for God's glory. But God himself and his steadfast love, God himself as the giver of that good gift well, God is even better. But brothers and sisters, here's the thing. Ultimately, that's not a truth that we can just arrive at by logical deduction or persuasive arguments. That's something that God has to give us eyes to see. That God has to grant the faith that we would truly believe that to be true. And to the extent that he does, well, then and only then will our souls truly thirst for him like David's soul does here. And point number one, David's longing for God. Well, that brings us to point number two, David's satisfaction in God. I want you to look at verse five. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. And did you notice how David, sneaky guy that he is, how he switches up the metaphor on us there? Because he's been talking about the thirst of his soul, right? As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Uh, that's the metaphor that he starts with, one of thirst. 
And so we would expect the resolution, the satisfaction, to be compared to, I don't know, a cool stream of water that he comes upon that satisfies his thirst. But no, look at how he switches up the metaphor as if to say, it's not just some cool water for the soul, though that would be enough. It is an entire banquet for the soul. It is a feast of fat and rich food. Picture a a juicy, sizzling, medium-rare porterhouse steak with all kinds of sides and drinks and desserts, the whole thing, right? A lavish feast. Now, that's a metaphor that captures our attention. But where does that satisfaction come from? Where does that kind of lavish, feast-like satisfaction come from? Well, verses 6 and 7, it comes about when David meditates on God and calls to mind that God has always been his help. So picture David here. He's lying awake in the middle of the night. He's unable to get a full night's sleep because, you know, the whole people trying to kill you thing tends to interfere with your sleep in a funny way. But as he lies awake, what is the focus of his mind? Is it his fears and his anxieties and his worries? No. It's God. And how up to this point, God has been his help. You have been my help, my Ebenezer. Now, if this is happening during the reign of Saul, well, David can think back to God allowing him to defeat Goliath, of how the Lord was with him in all of his battles, of how God used his friendship with Jonathan to strengthen David's hand in God. God had been his help through everything, ever and always showing David his steadfast love for him. Or, if this is happening during the Absalom thing, well, there's even a longer track record of God's faithfulness for David to reflect on. How God delivered him from all of Saul's plots, how God eliminated the threat of Ishbosheth, how God promised him this glorious covenant. Even how God granted him genuine repentance and forgiveness after the whole Bathsheba thing. How God had been his help through everything, ever and always showing David his steadfast love for him. And so it's as David reflects on that, as he sees that his life, even with everything that he's going through, that his life in relation to God It's like a baby chick under the protection and care of a mother hen's wings, right? Look at verse 7. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. And so it's meditating on all of that goodness and faithfulness that God has shown to him over the many years. It's meditating on that that makes David sense God's presence and rejoice in the steadfast love of God, which is better than life. It's that which ultimately satisfies his soul like fat and rich food. Point number two, David's satisfaction in God. And you can see how this point is vitally related to the previous one. Point number one, a longing for God, leads to a point number two, a satisfaction in God. 
Because if we, like David, if we truly believe that God's steadfast love is better than life, so that the greatest desire and longing of our soul is to know God more and to know his steadfast love better, well, God delights to fulfill such desires in his children. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. Jeremiah 29, 13. Or what Jesus said, John 7. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Or Revelation 22, the very last chapter in the Bible. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Right? When God's children have that kind of thirst, God freely invites them to come and drink of him and be satisfied. But on the other hand, on the other hand, if we're like the children that C.S. Lewis describes as being far too easily pleased, the kid who likes playing with mud pies because he can't envision how glorious a vacation by the sea would be. Well, that's not only going to be reflected in our misguided desires for kind of cheap worldly substitutes for God like money and status and stuff and pleasure and thrills and man's approval. But it's also going to inevitably end with unfulfilled and unsatisfied desires because those things are broken cisterns that can hold no water. Broken cisterns that can never satisfy the ultimate thirst of our souls. But as for David, well, David's desires are for God himself. And so his satisfaction is found in God alone. Point number two, David's satisfaction is in God. And we as fellow children of God should not be willing to settle for less ourselves. Which leads us to our last point, point number three, David's trust in God. I'll read verses 9 through 11 here. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. And so even as his longing is for God, that was point number one, and his satisfaction is found in God, right, that's point number two, well, David's still left with these two competing realities. Right, on one hand, you've got this harsh reality that even though he finds his satisfaction in God, even as he meditates on God's steadfast love toward him and how that fulfills the ultimate desire of his soul, well, it's not like his worldly problems have gone away. There are still, look at verse 9, those who seek to destroy my life. Like those people haven't magically disappeared. And there are still, verse 11, liars who are slandering him. Like at the end of the day, as satisfied as his soul might be, well, he's still in exile. His life is still in jeopardy. His enemies are still coming for his life. Friends, it's a good reminder to us that faithfully and Earnestly pursuing God, 
Like going after him with everything that we've got? Well, it's no guarantee that difficulties in this life will then cease. It's no guarantee that we're going to get good reports of the doctor or that our finances aren't going to be difficult or that people aren't going to hate us and revile us. As a matter of fact, the Bible's pretty clear that godliness often comes with its own unique trials. But along with that harsh reality, that his troubles aren't going away, along with that harsh reality for David is the comforting reality that his God is a God who can be trusted. A God who can be trusted in the midst of all of those trials. A God who can be trusted to vindicate him from his enemies. And so David trusts, verse 9, that those who seek to destroy him are themselves going to be destroyed. They're going to be slain by the sword, verse 10. They're going to be jackal food. I'm referring to the fact that they're not even going to have an honorable burial. Not a pleasant picture, but you get the idea. And David trusts that while his enemies would fall in a shameful death and be silenced, the king, referring to himself, the king shall rejoice in God. Now, how is he able to have that trust? Well, remember 2 Samuel chapter 7, all the promises that God has made to King David. So David knows that his throne is secure. And so he's confident that he will be delivered. He's so confident, so confident in that deliverance here that he doesn't even ask God for it. He, he, just, he just states it as a matter of fact. Now, we might not have those direct promises of deliverance given to us like David did. We might not have a secure and guaranteed throne like David did. But we do have the same faithful God that David did. And while our God doesn't promise us earthly deliverance, well, he's promised us something better, which is that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Point number three, David's trust in God. So that's Psalm 63. And really, anytime you preach through a psalm, it's necessarily going to be application-heavy throughout. And so we've already covered much application. But let me leave you with one final point of application that I think is really important here. And that's to remember, right, as you go and earnestly pursue the Lord, as Psalm 63 pictures for us, as Psalm 63 calls us to do, well, as you earnestly pursue the Lord, uh, to remember that it's all of grace. That it's all of grace. Uh, there's an inherent danger in going through a psalm like this, Psalm 63, a psalm about earnestly and passionately seeking after the Lord, like going hard after God. The danger is that we, we can try to, we can begin to rather think that our pursuit of God is, is ultimately about us. It's ultimately all about how hard we try and how diligently we're seeking and how earnestly am I going to pursue But David doesn't allow us to make this all about us. 
Look again at verse 8. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Uh, my soul clings to you. Right? That's us as sincere believers pursuing hard after God. I like how the old King James puts it. It says, my soul followeth hard after thee. That's our part. That's what we do. That is, that is our desire and our action. My soul followeth hard after thee. But now look at how David counterbalances that. Like how he puts all that followething in its proper context. Right? Your right hand upholds me. And so it's not just that my soul clings to God. It's that at the same time, God's right hand, his right hand of power, upholds me. And the fact of the matter is, at the end of the day, if God's right hand doesn't uphold us, like if God doesn't hold on to us with that iron-clad grip of his steadfast love, then we would have no hope of clinging to him. We would lose our grip. We would let go. We would chase after the things of the world. But God upholds us. And that's what keeps his people following hard after him. It's kind of like when I'm with one of my children near a ledge. Maybe there's a a scenic view or an overlook on a hike or something. And Paxton wants to take a look. He's scared of heights. He understands the dangers. And so he's gripping onto my hand as hard as he can, as tightly as he can, so that he does not slip and fall. He must grip my hand tightly if he's not going to slip and fall. But ultimately, what is it that keeps him from falling? It's not really his grip on my hand. It's my grip on his. Well, in the same way, what is it that ultimately keeps us, as God's children, walking close to him, desirous to seek his face, pursuing hard after him? Yes, we must pursue hard after him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But ultimately, it's not really our clinging to him as much as it is his upholding us. Brothers and sisters, remember that truth. Even as you follow hard after him this week, as you earnestly seek his face, pursuing him with everything that you have, remember that ultimately it's all of his grace, that his right hand upholds his people. Father, please change our hearts by your word. Increase our faith, increase our desire for you, increase our conviction that your steadfast love is better than life. Father, we ask that you would work by your word through the Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.